Welcome to BIV Today. We are the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. First up on the show, the author of BC's Dirty Money Report details how lower mainland casinos laundered proceeds of crime and what government can do about it. And a little later on, we're going to speak to Pietra Balsili from the Vancouver Economic Commission about what local governments can do to alleviate the industrial land crunch felt by Vancouver businesses. A 250-page report commissioned by BC's Attorney General details how lower mainland casinos came to serve as laundromats for the proceeds of organized crime. Released this week, Dirty Money is an independent review by Peter German, principal at Peter German & Associates. He's a lawyer, a former RCMP deputy commissioner for Western and Northern Canada, and we have the pleasure of having him on our show today to walk us through some of the review's findings. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Haley. 250 pages detail this, but in your own words, I mean, the question on my mind is how did we get here? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I My suspicion is that the uh, financial model that we have for gaming in this province, which is a really good one, um, sort of surpassed the regulatory side. So uh, what we have what we need is a maturing of that regulatory enforcement uh, side of the industry. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, over time, the problem grew and um, people uh, knew they had a problem. They tried to deal with it. Uh, I have described what I refer to as a failed strategy. Um, the problem just got worse until mid-July, well, mid-2015, and uh, at that point, uh, it, it almost reached its breaking point, and uh, and that brings us here today. Yeah, that was the month I believe that we found out that there's thirteen and a half million dollars in twenty dollar bills passed through one casino's cash counters. And I'm just curious. I mean, does that not raise any alarm bells from kind of the organizations within? Should there not have been some sort of trigger or some sort of mechanism that would have you know sprung somebody into action at that very moment? Well, precisely. That's the problem. Uh, the system uh, essentially broke down, as, or there was no system uh, to deal with it. The service providers, the casino operators, were in fact submitting suspicious currency transaction reports for years. Thousands have been submitted. They've been submitted to the provincial regulator, they've been submitted to the federal regulator, and copies have gone to the RCMP. So, um, was anything done? Well, certainly people looked at them. Uh, everybody did what they felt they could do, um, and it just wasn't enough. The system did not work uh, as a system. It, it, it broke down, and uh, there, there was no one-stop shopping, and that brings us quickly into the issue of uh, regulation, about the police, and, and so forth. And your report goes over this, too. It seems, uh, from a layman's perspective, anyhow, it's quite murky. There's a series of regulations, or provincial ones and federal ones, different parties who may oversee things like this. At the end of the day, the buck stops where? Who is supposed to be overseeing casinos and the potential for illegal activity at them? Right. So the bottom line is you need a strong regulator, and we don't have that in this province. Uh, we have the Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch, which is the regulator, but it is embedded within government. It is not independent. It does not have its own status. It's not a crown corporation. It does not have a board of directors. So 
it is within the bureaucracy and it deals it's also a policy center for government so it does a lot of other things um, on the other hand you've got the federal regulator and the federal regulator FinTrack collects data but it is not a law enforcement agency so it relies on law enforcement to deal with um, these uh, the information that it collects you have then law enforcement, and as I detail in, in the report, law enforcement was engaged at different points, but not consistently. And uh, there were changes in the RCMP Procedure Crime Program in 2013. They essentially left that area. Um, they, or they restructured, and there was a move towards anti-terrorism and so forth. So essentially, you have a regulator that's not independent. Um, you've got a regulator in Ottawa that relies on the police, and you've got the police that are busy doing other things. Uh, and what happens? Uh, BCLC, the Lottery Corporation, becomes, in my view, a quasi-regulator. They are uh, almost regulating their own uh, contractors, and, and that's not the way it should be. Well, we have Attorney General here in British Columbia, David Eby. He's very eager to implement a lot of these recommendations. And from your perspective here, what is it going to take just with regards to reorganizing the system to a certain degree? What would you like to see in the future and what uh, Mr. Eby has promised us British Columbians as well? Sure. So I think, you know, it's not about just uh, doing mechanical changes. Um, I think there has to be an overarching uh, change in strategy. And that's why I've talked about a... um, standards-based regime as opposed to a prescriptive regime. Right now, uh, casino operators are told what to do uh, by BCLC. It's very specific uh, in terms of, let's say, cash alternatives. If you, if you want to develop, uh, let's say, if, you want to use, if a casino operator wants to use checks, if they want to use uh, electronic funds transfers, if they want to develop credit uh, and, and so forth, they need approval. And this approval process has gone back and forth between BCLC and GPEB for years. So they will debate uh, whether checks should be allowed, whether uh, how the checks should be constituted. Um, uh, you know, should you be allowed to wire money in internationally? If so, to what banks? So these discussions have been ongoing. I say no. You need a standards-based regime, much like we have in Ontario and in most other jurisdictions, where there are overarching standards. Uh, reliance is placed on the casino operators. They they become ultimately responsible for what they do. Uh, it's it's not so much BCLC, and that means that they report suspicious transactions. They do the due diligence on their patrons, and uh, they also will determine what is commercially feasible for them in terms of credit alternatives. So essentially, you know, getting on with 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 the game. So if we have a standards based uh, regime. I think a whole lot of things will work a lot better. And then you deal with those mechanical aspects, as I've recommended, an independent regulator, uh, a police force that is specialized in dealing with gaming and so forth. On the topic of casino operators and them being the ones to now take any regulatory changes and act on them, the report describes sort of this culture around VIP experiences, courting certain people into casinos. Is there going to have to be a cultural shift within these operators? Yeah, the operators themselves, um, also the three large operators in the Lower Mainland operate in other jurisdictions, including in Nevada, and uh, their registration in those other jurisdictions is largely dependent on how they behave, in, you know, elsewhere. Mm. Um, so they and and they also are used to a standards-based model. They are used to being responsible for knowing your customer. 
and doing the things that I described a few moments ago, uh, they actually want to have the responsibility placed on their shoulders. Uh, there are commercial uh, benefits to them uh, by doing that, but they also realize that there's, there's a, a, a burden placed on their shoulders. And so you say, okay, well, uh, we've we got to be careful. Uh, we're putting the fox in, in, in the hen house, so to speak. Um, but uh, that is why you also need an independent regulator uh, that is able to ride herd over what is taking place. And on top of that, by having a criminal enforcement um, uh, a, a, a police force uh, dealing with criminal enforcement in the casino industry, in the legal casino industry, I think you've nicely got it covered. And that works in Nevada, and it works in Ontario. Well, I, I do want to talk to you about that, because let's say hypothetically we've got this standards-based regime implemented here in British Columbia, and, th- and then we can get into the mechanics just a little bit of this. And your own background as a former RCMP deputy commissioner, I'm wondering about this creation of a coordinated police units. Uh, we, we have such in the lower mainland with regards to the homicide team. Uh, we also have the gang task force here as well. What are the kind of the mechanics about developing some sort of uh, police unit that would be uh, centered around enforcing what's going on in the gaming industry in this particular right. region? So I'm not recommending an integrated police unit uh, such as some of those that you've described. Uh, I've recommended a specialist uh, unit and the closest equivalent is the transit police. So think about the transit police and how they operate. They have a very defined jurisdiction. Yes, they're provincial constables, but their their work is on the transit lines, the Canada line and, and the Millennium line and so forth. That is their job. And they become specialists at what takes place in transit. So it's the same model exactly. Um, you have a police force that specializes in gaming matters. Nobody is looking at gaming offenses right now. Uh, the RCMP has the JIGIT, or, or the, uh, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, has JIGIT, which is dealing with the money laundering, and that's good, and I, I'm supportive of it, um, but you need a specialist uh, police force, and, um, uh, and you can't rely on the uh, police forces of jurisdiction. The, our casinos are spread out. The five large casinos are in five different police jurisdictions, so it's much like that transit model. And so we've done it before in this province. There would have to be a police board, just like the transit police have their own board. Um, and I, I, I'm confident that it would work. Based on your experience, Peter, and based on what you found in this review, if some of the changes are implemented, is it realistic to think that we can virtually, as close as possible, eliminate dirty money from our casinos? As much as possible. Uh, And we've already noticed a decline once the heat was put on organized crime starting in 2015. And um, I'd say really uh, it it gained momentum uh, last fall when uh, the media shone a light uh, on what was taking place. And then an interim recommendation or two interim recommendations that the minister accepted uh, dealing with source of funds declarations and, and a regulator presence overnight. All of that has contributed to essentially making casinos not the best place to go if you want to launder your money today. And so there has been a noticeable decline in suspicious transaction reporting. So the suspicious money is not coming in uh, as it did before. Will you eliminate it totally? No, just like you won't eliminate street crime totally. But I think we can go uh, quite a distance to getting there. The problem, of course, is where is organized crime laundering its money now if it's no longer in the casinos. Right.
And where is that? Because you do touch on some vulnerabilities in your report. Where are some of the other areas we should be paying attention to? Right. And um, essentially, you, you have to ask yourself, what sectors of the economy, um, in what sectors of the economy can you essentially deposit cash? Can you purchase with cash? And no regulation. The federal government is currently looking at amendments to the Proceeds of Crime Money Laundering uh, Act and has identified a number of sectors in the economy uh, where currently there is no reporting requirement. So you've got a, a casino industry that reports suspicious transactions and has been doing that for years. You've got the banking industry do, that does, but then you've got others that don't. So, for example, uh, the auto industry. Well, people didn't think very much of that 20 years ago because automobiles you know, were, or did not cost exorbitant sums of money. But now, of course, Vancouver is the epicenter of, uh, using that word a few times, of luxury cars. And yeah. you can purchase cars with cash, boats, luxury goods. Uh, there are a number of uh, sectors that are not currently regulated. I know we're running short on time, Peter, but is the answer eliminate cash or place more checks on cash? Would that work? Well, actually, that is one of the, that that was, Part of the, what I would suggest was a failed strategy in the casinos is an attempt to move uh, the bad guys, so to speak, to cash alternatives. But of course, they still have to launder their cash. And we're not, cash is not going to disappear anytime soon. So I think we have to deal with that. To a certain extent, as the Attorney General has mentioned, it's a bit like whack-a-mole. They, they have, we, you regulate one sector and organized crime may well move to another. But, you know, until we take a look at this, we don't know. And certainly the federal government is looking at it. So uh, certainly the, I, I encourage the province to do likewise. A lot to go through in this report, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today with an overview and some insight into what your review found. Thank you very much. You are most welcome. Thank you. That's Peter German, principal at Peter German and Associates, author, of course, of the new report out, Dirty Money, detailing the extent of organized crime funds in BC casinos. Stay with us. We're going to take another look at another report coming out this week that examines Vancouver's industrial land crunch. A new report from the Vancouver Economic Commission aims to bust some of the myths around Vancouver's industrial sector. The commission surveyed more than 160 businesses to create a snapshot of the sector, as well as to capture its needs. The Industrial Insights report also advocates that Vancouver needs more modern industrial policies to better support its industrial businesses. Joining us today is report author Petra Basili. She's the manager of industrial initiatives at the commission. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges facing Vancouver's industrial businesses? So the number one challenge that the businesses we surveyed identified was the increased cost of doing business. And those increased costs are coming from a few different uh, avenues. One of the major ones is actually an increase in property tax. Right. So because businesses are in triple net leases, they're on the hook to pay the property tax of the of the building that they're renting. And as property values have gone up and up and up over the last couple of years, uh, sometimes upwards of 30 to 50% per year, their property taxes are, are going up in step. And so those property taxes are, are really um, making it hard for them to plan for their, their business expenses in the following year. Are there concerns that maybe they're looking elsewhere, like migrating to other regions across, you know, 
Metro Vancouver, maybe even outside of this particular region, just to get cheaper deals on land, so to speak. Absolutely. That's the big risk that we really wanted to kind of raise the alarm bells with with this report. Um, 10% of the businesses we surveyed uh, said that they were planning on relocating in the next two years. And the majority of them were planning on relocating elsewhere in the region. Uh, but a small percentage of them were looking even elsewhere in the country or even in, in the states um, where they can find, you know, cheaper access to land and, and a different permitting environment. I'm curious, too, even if they're looking elsewhere in the region, there have been previous reports that have come out to suggest that even our neighboring municipalities, they're also facing an industrial land supply crunch, too. When you line up sort of the space needs of the businesses you looked at with what's available, is there anything available? It's a great question. Um, the entire region is in an, is in a pretty harsh um, crunch for industrial space right now. Uh, you know, the port has made some projections that we're going to run out of industrial space in mm -hmm. the next 10 years. One of the more interesting findings um, for us in, in this study was that a number of the industrial sectors that are growing really fast in the city of Vancouver could actually be accommodated in lands that are not uh, traditional industrial lands. So we have a lot of um, industrial technology companies like clean tech companies, biotech companies, agritech companies that need some industrial features like loading bays, high ceilings, freight elevators, but they're not doing a significant amount of distribution. They don't have need a lot, a ton of track truck access every day, that sort of thing. And so those could be reintegrated into traditional office or commercial districts. Have you even thought about, and I'm probably butchering like the traditional use of the term, but kind of more of these kind of mixed use developments where you can have some mixing and matching between what is not normally thought of traditionally? Yeah, absolutely. So um, traditionally, Industrial developments have been about 90% warehouse and manufacturing space and about 10% office or showroom space, that sort of thing. More and more we're seeing uh, as businesses integrate more design work, R&D work, lab work into their um, operations they're needing more of a 50-50 mix of office and industrial space. And so definitely um, industrial mixed use with office is something that we need to do more of in the city. But yeah. not necessarily, uh, say, uh, a big warehouse at the bottom and, and a lovely condo <laughs> right on top of it. That's not necessarily going to be the solution going forward. Or will it? I don't know. It's an interesting concept. Um, there's a couple of risks. So one of them is that our industrial land values are already uh, jumping up significantly year on year. And as soon as you even say the word residential, uh, speculation in Vancouver goes pretty wild. And so th there's a risk that the land values will uh, continue to rise beyond levels that are sustainable for industrial businesses. So there's certainly a big risk with introducing residential into industrial areas. That said, there are some uh, larger um, owner operators uh, who own their site and, and are operating a significant industrial business on it who have expressed a real interest in exploring something like employee rental housing because they're struggling to find uh, places for their employees to live nearby. That would be a really interesting solution. You mentioned speculation. Has there been speculation just on the industrial side of things like we've seen or at least talked about purely on the residential side? 
So because a lot of our industrial land in the last 30 years has been rezoned to residential or in, or institutional uses, uh, we have seen a fair amount of speculation, uh, particularly in the inner city or central um, industrial districts around uh, industrial land. And more and more, we're starting to see uh investment in industrial land, not for the purpose of development, but just for the purpose of investing money. And so um, that's another factor contributing to the rising land values. Is one of the issues too coming up against, and, and Tyler alluded to this too, sort of the what we think of maybe when we think of industrial, big warehouses might come to mind, heavy industry might come to mind, but you also mentioned clean tech, biotech, food processing. It's very broad. Maybe not the traditional smokestacks that you'd no. expect to see, right? But is that maybe what we think of? So when we say, oh, we're going to bring maybe residential and industrial to this community, people say, no, 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 we don't want a smoke snack in our neighborhood. There's definitely a big perception issue. Uh, and it's part of the reason why um, industrial business is not seen as being overly important to the general public, uh, partly because we still think of it as big, old industrial. We don't necessarily think of it as the people who are distributing our food or who are doing landscape services for condo buildings around town or uh, who are developing new but physical technologies. So one of the one of the um, models that we've started zoning for and, and um, creating policy for in Vancouver is multi-story or stacked industrial use, but very light industrial use. So these are a lot of uh, apparel manufacturers, food processors, uh, clean tech companies, biotech companies that could be on multiple floors of a building if they had access to loading bays and freight elevators and you know bigger energy um, requirements. You just mentioned a whole you know list of types of companies, say clothing manufacturers, clean tech, et cetera. Is that the perception among the average Vancouverite? Is that's what we're doing a lot of business in? Because you talk to the average person, you're like, oh, what's Vancouver about? Oh, um, real estate, for example. Is there kind of a misperception about how much of our economy is actually dependent on what's going on with a lot of the industrial businesses here? Yeah, absolutely. There's um, a real notion that nothing gets made here. Uh, because we don't see the big smokestacks and the significant material processing companies in town anymore, uh, there's a real perception that industrial in Vancouver is just distribution and logistics related to the port. Um, well, that's well, that's certainly a huge segment of our industrial economy across the region. In Vancouver, 30% of our industrial businesses are actually small-scale manufacturers that have less than 35 employees and take up less than 10,000 square feet. I think it's clear it would be quite a loss to the city's economy if we started to lose en masse a lot of these manufacturers. What do you think, Petra, is needed to keep them here at the policy level? So at the policy level, I do think we need to start looking at uh, ways to reintegrate industrial uses, particularly light industrial uses into our other commercial districts, such as um, small artisanal uses can be uh, placed in underutilized retail spaces. Um, as we talked about, we can reintroduce some forms of light industrial into commercial districts. We also need to um, update our current uh, uh, zoning schedules. Many of the businesses that we're working with are, are really struggling to navigate those schedules that were written for a different era because they don't cleanly fit within 
one category. They're not a retailer or a wholesaler or a repair business or a manufacturing business. They're a little bit of all of the above. And so we need to build a little bit more flexibility into our uh, permitting processes. I mean, it's a term that I have not heard in in maybe the last three or four years, but uh, the artisanal like zoning. Tell us a little bit about what, what would be an example of that, so to speak. Yeah, so we're seeing um, cities all across North America experiment with this. Um, an example of that would be a small-scale food processor, so somebody who's making uh, their own unique energy bars, and they need a place to package them, maybe sell some out the front door, uh, do a little bit of their own distribution. They maybe have a cube van or access to a moto cube van, um, and they're maybe doing a little bit of the uh, the actual uh, cooking or baking on site. And so it is technically an, an industrial use, but it's um, it's very light in that it doesn't require a huge amount of equipment or a huge uh, amount of trucking or anything like that. Okay. So you mentioned those energy bars and Haley, I was getting a flashback. Do you remember that interview we did maybe like a year or two with ago? With the cricket bars? With the cricket bars. I was bars. thinking the same thing. Okay. <laughs> We're on the same page. Coast protein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Well, that's not what I think I'll be the first to uh, to buy if okay. I'm frequenting an artisanal area in our city, but who knows, maybe one day. Um, the report, Peter, also touches on the need for regional coordination. What's the consequence of not being coordinated as a region when it comes to industrial space? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. The um the consequence right now is an increased cost of goods and services. So businesses that are operating across the region actually need multiple business licenses right now, many of them, uh multiple commercial vehicle licenses and also and they're also navigating multiple very different permitting processes, particularly uh building codes and things like that. So when you're navigating a different process and paying for these fees in every city in which you operate, um, your cost of going of doing business goes way up. And so that that cost is often passed on to the consumer. And so one of the risks of displacing businesses from Vancouver, but also one of the risks of not regionally coordinating is that our our cost of goods and services will continue to go up and up and up. Do you get the sense that there is an appetite for regional coordination throughout Metro Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, uh, the neighboring municipalities are also starting to to sound the alarm bells on our industrial space crunch in particular. Um, but we're now looking uh, at all of the policies across the region that, that are needed to support industrial business. So Metro Vancouver is leading a big industrial lands review over the coming year and and through that process, we're hoping to bring up many of these uh, specific issues affecting sectors like solar energy installers and mm. materials management companies um, and that sort of thing. Great. Petra, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. That's Petra Basili. She's the manager of industrial initiatives at the Vancouver Economic Commission, as well as the author of their latest industrial insights report. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. And you can subscribe and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Stitchers, and go to BIV.com where you can find even more of our business stories. 